Well, it's certainly a great delight to be with you this morning. I've enjoyed coming to see Desert Springs Church uh, for my own, with my own eyes. Uh, Trent, over the years, has told me much about the church and even about the Claris Conference. And he says, oh, you've got to come out and see all the people and how great this place is. And uh, now, in God's uh, grace and providence, I've been able to do that and be with him and the whole team here, Ryan, and Asher's been driving uh, us around and everybody that's put everything on. I want to just thank you for really the privilege of being uh, with you. My task this morning, we're sort of finishing up the conference as Ryan introduced it. We're looking at the church, right? So in the great span of God's plan from creation to new creation, we want to think about ourselves, but I want to first ask if you were to take a poll, all kinds of polls that people take, especially when uh, elections come and this type of thing, if you were to ask people uh, in a variety of places, what do you think when you hear the word the church? (laughs) What comes to mind? Well, I think you'd get probably a variety of answers and probably some very sad answers. If you were to ask maybe the media, Right. I don't try to listen too much to the media, but if you ask them, uh, they would probably say something, well, the church, they're a bunch of bigots. Uh, the church, you know, they're intolerant and troublemakers, and they don't get with the times, and especially if they uh, try to be true to that Bible, I mean, they would have all kinds, I think, of negative things to say about us, right? Uh, the person on the street, depending on their familiarity with the church, they may say, oh, a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, we often don't live up to what we are to be as the church, but they will say, oh, you know, hypocrites, or you can't trust them, or they're narrow-minded. And they may have a similar perspective to the media or so. If you ask people in the church, I think it, the answer to what the church is would vary quite a bit depending on the churches that you would speak of. Right? Some would say, well, you know, the church is a nice place I go once a week or maybe show up at Christmas and Easter and uh, I get my sort of spirituality fix, but you know, I really don't have much time for it. And others then uh, with a proper view of the church would say, well, the church is vitally important and it's uh, the people of God. And so we'd have all kinds of different opinions about what the church is. Now, if we ask scripture (laughs) what the church is, If we turn to God's word and then say, what is the church? We get quite a different answer than what we would see in the larger society. In fact, if we turn to the scripture, and we'll do that, uh, and you look at all that it's saying, you would find that the church is presented as a people, but in some sense, the most significant people in all of God's plans and purposes. They are his chosen people. It's through them that uh, the triune God is working out his reconciliation and redemptive purposes. The church in God's plan and in God's thinking is the center of all that he is doing in this world. Now, that's certainly not what our world thinks about the church, but that's what scripture thinks about it. In fact, the church, as you work through the Bible, and see the coming of Christ and the church being identified with him, the church is the only people, the only, even if you say institution, that lasts forever. 
It goes, we are the beginning of the new creation, and it lasts forever and ever. That's not true of any club you're involved in. So you may be involved in a variety of good clubs and good social efforts and so on. All of those things eventually are part of the falling away of this world. Even nations are part of the United States of America and probably proud of our nation. It's not perfect, but we stand and we sing and we give allegiance to the flag and so on. But nations come and go. They're not the church. Nations rise and fall. We've seen that through history. This nation will not last. But the church will last forever. Now you say, what does the church have to do with Christ from beginning to end? That's the theme of our conference. And of course, the Bible, the first thing you have to think about the church is that you cannot think of the church apart from Christ. Christ has a people. In some sense, the first truth that Scripture teaches about the church is that Christ and his people are inseparable. The Lord Jesus comes and he comes, we read in Matthew 16. Think of the very, very famous passage where Jesus is at a major turning point in the gospel, in his ministry. He's asking a poll of his own disciples. What, who do people say that I am? Peter rightly answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he goes to unpack you know, some of the nature of that. He's gonna to go to a cross and die. But he then makes that famous statement tied to his entire coming. I will build my church. So we see he even in what Jesus is saying here that his entire coming, the incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, is for a reason. He's come to bring salvation, but he's come to build a people. He's come to establish a church that he then goes on and says the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Speaking of the church as that which is eternal. So in scripture, you cannot separate Christ from his people. Another way of looking at it is as you look at what Christ does, it then gets applied to his people. So you think of Christ comes to bring redemption. So who are the beneficiaries of that? We are. We are the redeemed people of God. He comes and brings reconciliation. Who are the beneficiaries of that? We are. Right? Uh, he comes to bring justification, and we are a justified people. Uh, we are raised with him. All of the life of Christ, think of all the way from his obedient life, becomes our life. It becomes imputed to us. His death, an accomplishment for the payment of our sins, now is applied to us. His resurrection. Why is it that there is the hope of resurrection? Because he's raised. 1 Corinthians 15, and we will be inseparably related to his resurrection. We must come out of the grave. That is where our hope is found. And then you can look at flip side in terms of the church. The church is described in scripture, we'll see just in a moment, Ephesians 2, that it's a new humanity. Well, why is that? Because Christ is the last Adam. He is the one who is the first man of the new creation and makes then us new creations. Or the church is described as a family of God. What made that possible? Because the Son of God from eternity took on our flesh. He became the Son of God in a messianic sense and brought us back to sonship, right? We are the family of God. We are a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter 1 and 2 
Yet it's wise because it's tied to Christ as the great high priest. So all of that is, is the, the relationship of Christ to his people is inseparable. Now that should make sense if we really are thinking biblically. The reason it should make sense if we're thinking biblically is that the relationship of Christ to his people is described in Scripture as a covenant relationship. We see this all the way across the canon. Marriage pictures this, all of these areas. But we are in a covenant relationship. Christ is our covenant head. He is our bridegroom. We are the bride. He is the head. We are the body and so on. And as we've looked over this weekend, we've looked at the importance of covenants in Scripture. Not only do they describe how we relate to God and who God is, but they also unfold for us the whole plan of salvation. The covenants are important, and it ultimately results in this new covenant relationship that is what the church is. So to rightly think about the church, we must rightly think about Christ. To rightly think about the church, we must think of his incarnation all the way through his life, death, resurrection, the pouring out of the spirit of Pentecost. You'll never understand what the church is apart from understanding him and his work and then us as the beneficiaries of it, which is a glorious truth. Well, how do we get our mind around this this morning in the time that we have? Well, I want to focus briefly on two texts, right? can't do a full exposition of these passages, uh, they're too rich, but I want to highlight a couple of points since we're doing sort of our grand bird's eye survey of, of Scripture. I want to pick an Old Testament text, Jeremiah 31, and I invite you to turn there right now, Jeremiah 31, and I picked that Old Testament text because from the Old Testament, we read in 1 Peter 1 that... The prophets longed to see what was coming in the future. And the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, anticipate a day which the New Testament says has now arrived. Right? Uh, that there will be a people. A people that is, and that it will describe these people and it will set it in the context of the Old Testament people of God. It will describe these people as a transformed people, a people who receive all the benefits of this Messiah who comes. Jeremiah 31 is a great passage that gives to us in anticipatory form, which the New Testament then applies to the church. Hebrews 8 is a good example of this, where the church now is presented as God's new covenant people. And Jeremiah 31 will give us some hints at what that new covenant people will be like, which is precisely what we see in the New Testament. Then we want to turn just briefly to Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following. And that's another great church text. But it's a great church text because it ties us back to the entire plan of God, right? Jew and Gentile coming together as the new humanity, the new temple, and so on. So let's look at Jeremiah 31 as we think of sort of Old Testament expectation. The prophets were looking forward to uh, the coming of Messiah and the coming of a new covenant age. And that new covenant age, they describe in a variety of ways, but one way they describe it is that the people of this new covenant, which is what the church is, the people of this new covenant will be a transformed people. Right? Now, this is important to see because it's going to contrast with the Old Testament covenants, particularly the nation of Israel. 
under the old covenant or Mosaic covenant or the law covenant, number of names that you could say to it, uh, the nation of Israel was the people of God, yet they had within that people believers and unbelievers. We sometimes describe this as a, as a mixed kind of community. You could come into the community by birth and by, if you were a male, you were circumcised as a sign of being part of that family, even in the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, all of his children are part of the Abrahamic covenant, yet some are believers, some are not, and so on. And Jeremiah is going to anticipate a future where that's no longer going to be the case. We pick up in verse 29 of Jeremiah 31. The promise of the new covenant, for the most part, and it gets quoted in the New Testament, starts with verse 31, but 29 is a kind of introduction to the prophecy, introduction to what we should expect in terms of the new covenant. We read in verse 29, in those days, people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man say to his neighbor, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Now here's the new covenant promise. It's given in a number of places in the prophets, but we're going to focus our attention on what's said here. Now last night, when we were looking at how the Old Testament prophets look forward to the coming of the new covenant, the coming of Christ, we focused on the second half of verse 34. What is new about this new covenant as the prophets look forward is that there's going to be in this new covenant the full forgiveness of sins. God will remember our sins no more, right? That means atonement is full. There's going to be a full payment. That is very glorious when you think of who God is and what our sin is before God, right? We have no standing before the holy God apart from him providing a sacrifice for us, him providing a redeemer for us. And of course, that works out in terms of the New Testament. Christ is the one. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He comes and brings the full atoning sacrifice for sins, unlike lambs and goats and Levitical priests that only pointed to this, Jesus brings justification. He brings reconciliation. He puts away our sins so that we are right with God and all of the implications from it. But there's two other features of this new covenant promise that now sort of apply more to us. Now, this applies to us in the sense of we're forgiven of our sins. But these other features you first see in verse 29 and 30 are signaling from an Old Testament perspective 
Not only is this new covenant going to have the full forgiveness of sins, but the people of this covenant, because they are tied to the Messiah of the covenant, the Christ of the covenant, are also going to experience some differences from Old Testament Israel. 29 and 30, we read, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, so in the future no one will say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge instead. Everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his teeth. Say, what does this mean? It's a little parable. It's found in Ezekiel as well. In this context here, it's important to set these in context, I do think it's signaling something. I think we can bear this out in other passages as well. When the scripture speaks about the fathers and the children in an Old Testament context, this, I think, the fathers would speak of the leaders. Uh, Ezekiel 34 speaks of shepherds of Israel. That's the fathers, right? Who are the shepherds of Israel? Well, they were the, the prophets and the priests and the kings. They were the ones who led Israel. And the way that the Old Covenant was structured and put together was that it was very much a kind of leadership-run covenant, right? You had the people in the covenant, but if you wanted to hear a word from God, you went to the prophet, right? If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you, you go to the priest. The king rules over you. And of course, these leaders in the Old Testament as well, even though Jeremiah doesn't speak of this, other prophets will speak of this, these leaders would have the anointing of the Spirit, so you see the Spirit coming upon prophets and priests and uniquely kings. And they were empowered for leadership and they were gifted to lead the people of God. And I think what is being signaled here in verse 29 and 30 is that's now changing. Right? It's not going to be that there are just these specific leaders that will rule over you. Eventually, as it works itself out, Christ is the great prophet, priest, and king. We will all come to him, and he will make us all, by virtue of him, prophets who will be able to speak to one another. We will have a priestly task that we will dwell before God and bear witness of the gospel, and we will be restored to our kingly kind of work. And 29 and 30 is signaling something of this change. If you go back in your Bibles to Numbers 11, I'm going to tie just a couple of passages here that I think pick up this idea of within Israel, there's leaders who are empowered by the Spirit. That's not true of all the people in this kind of gifting, empowering sense. Numbers 11 is a very, very important passage. Numbers 11, in its context, verse 16 and following is where uh, Moses is just overwhelmed with leading the nation of Israel. Uh, one guy can't do it all, and so God picks elders, 70 elders, to help him lead. And what God does for these elders, you see it in uh, verse 16, where God says, here's the elders. And what does he do for these elders? Well, he places the spirit on them, right? So he says in verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known as leaders, officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting. They will stand with you. I'll come down and speak there. I will take of the spirit that is on you and put on them. Right? So there's this leadership role, the fathers. They have the spirit placed on them. 
and they then govern the life of the people. And then there's an interesting episode that occurs as you walk through the passage. They, in verse 24, receive the Spirit. They prophesy, which is very interesting. They speak a word of prophecy. And then there are two individuals in verse 26 who are part of these 70 elders, but they seem to be outside the camp for some reason. And Joshua sees that they too are prophesying, but Joshua's concerned for, for the Moses' name and jealousy for his name's sake. And he says to Moses, you know, stop these guys from doing this. And we then read in verse 29, Moses replied to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? I wish, I wish, he says, that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now, it's very interesting. Now, the very fact that he wishes that means that at this point in time is not happening, right? It's happening upon the 70 elders. It's happening upon the leadership, but it's not happening across the board. But he says, I wish. It's almost as if... And of course, we know this because this gets picked up in the prophets. It's almost as if Moses was saying, I long for the day. I long for the day that the fathers won't be like this. The children won't just have to follow them. When the fathers do well, the children do well. When the fathers don't. No, no, I long for the day when the Spirit will be poured out on all of them. This entire community that will be gifted and empowered and so on. Now, Joel 2, if you go to Acts 2... Acts 2 is the great place to see this, but uh, Acts 2 at Pentecost ultimately brings Moses' desire and wish and prayer to fulfillment, but it comes through the prophet Joel, right? So you have numbers that where Moses is saying, I wish in the future that God's people would all be like this. Well, Joel later, as he anticipates the new covenant, and as Jeremiah speaks of this as well, We have in the quotation of Acts 2, because we can just see, quotes Joel for us in verse 15, that Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit there at Pentecost, is the fulfillment of Moses' prayer and ultimately Joel's prophetic expectation. And see how it's said in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Moses says, I wish that all the people of God. Well, Joel said that's going to happen, and this is what now has happened. Right? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days they will prophesy. Right? Now, here's the fulfillment of this, right? How does this come over to the church? This is what, ultimately, to be part of the new covenant community, our people, we'll see in a moment, that have new hearts, but here it's speaking of all the people will be gifted. All the people will be empowered. All the people will have the Spirit of God upon them. The Spirit of God that then leads them to acts of service. Now, this doesn't mean that they all do the same task. They have all the same gift. This gets picked up in the letters. But it does signal a major change. Through the Messiah, through the coming of Christ, he has a people who he pours out the Spirit on those people so that all those people are gifted. They know God. They serve God. I mean, this speaks of a new community that's unlike anything before. And then if you go back to Jeremiah 31, there's a second aspect 
Not only the idea of gifting and empowering that comes upon all people, but tied directly, intimately tied to this is they have new hearts, right? You don't have the spirit in this empowering that's also now divorced from a changed heart. So Jeremiah 31, 33, this gets tied in with Ezekiel and Isaiah and other places where now there's a transformation of the people. I will put, in verse 33, the law in their minds. It's very, very close. It's not the same, but it's very, very close to circumcision of heart language, right? God will circumcise hearts. I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor. That's, I think, signaling. You won't just go to the prophets. You will know God directly. You will know him intimately. You will be in direct relationship to him. You don't go through these mediators. You come to the one mediator, Christ Jesus, and you now have the spirit, and you now have a new heart, and you will all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, what does this have to say about the church? Well, the first thing it says, the church isn't just like any people of old, right? There's a, there's a, God always has had a people across the ages. But as you work across the covenants, we now in the church, because of the work of Christ, are where all of his plan is going. This people that are created in relationship to Christ now are a new people, a regenerate people, a transformed people. Oh, we still grow in grace and we await the end, but we are to be a people who now know God, who have forgiveness of sins. The church isn't just a bunch of believers and unbelievers gathering together. No, we are God's new covenant community, new creation community that he has now built in Christ, and we are his prized possession. This is one of the reasons why when you have people come into membership in a church, right? There's a distinction between those outside the church and those within. You're only part of the church in relation to Christ if there is new birth, that there is repentance, that there is faith in Christ, that there's new life that's been born of the Spirit, that the Spirit has been poured out on you. So many people, even in our country, and I'm sure in Albuquerque, still view Christianity in terms of externals, don't they? They still view Christianity. I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, and for many years, I had to, you know, only by God's grace, I worked almost on the coattails of my parents, right? Well, I go to church. I'm a Christian because I got parents who are Christian and so on. That's not what the new covenant is, right? Under the old covenant, you could be brought into that community on parents' coattails in that way. But in the new covenant community, it is by new birth. You don't come through parents, you don't come through priestly systems or anything, you come directly to God. Are you in the new covenant people? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. If this is what the church is, this is now tied to him, tied to Christ, then are you born of the Spirit? Do you know that you have been made alive? Do you know that the Spirit of God has transformed you and brought you to faith in Christ alone? If that's not true of you, you're not part of the church. I don't care if you grow up in America. I don't care if you grow up in a Christian home. You're only Christ's people by repentance and faith and trust in him. And, of course, that leads to now a people who are to be living for him and acting as he has made us to be, right? One of the reasons why 
the church is viewed as such a bunch of hypocrites is that we have a lot of unbelievers in the church, right? But they're not the church, right? Just because they show up, give some head, you know, they tip their hat to Jesus does not make them God's people, right? They must come to the place, you must come to the place where you say, I was once dead, I'm now alive, I've come to faith in Christ, I'm part of his people, I know that I have been born of the Spirit of God, I have a new heart, new affections. And if that's not true of you, you don't know Christ or are not part of his people. But if it is true, then we are part of this prized people that he has now brought together in the great plan of God. And that community, us, will continue until the end. Now, Ephesians 2, that is the Old Testament expectation. Ephesians 2 is another passage. There are so many passages in the New Testament that unfold for us the church. I've chosen this passage here because it fits with sort of our larger seeing of how the Bible fits together and how the covenants have brought their, the Old Testament covenants have led to the coming of Christ in the New Covenant. And there's probably no greater passage that speaks of that than Ephesians chapter 2, right? Particularly verses 11 through 22, right? The context of Ephesians 2, Paul is writing to this church, it's probably mostly a Gentile church, there would have been Jewish people in it as well. From chapter 1, he's just full of praise, right? He can't get over God's grace, he can't get over that God in eternity past. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 has elected him, the people of God, on the stage of redemptive history. God has worked through the covenants and now brought about this great people, this church, now a new humanity. And he is full of praise and thanksgiving, and he wants this church to know who they are in Christ and what they are as the people of God. In fact, I think in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10... He first tells these people who they are sort of at the individual level, right? And we can look at that. We can say, who are we as individual believers and Christians, right? He casts it in terms of what they once were and what they now are. And we could really look at one, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 as what they once were in Adam, what they were in sin and death and what they now are in Christ Jesus. And even in this passage, we won't be looking at verses 1 to 10, but it's a famous one where we're saved by grace, we're raised with Christ, we are made his workmanship, his poetry, his masterpiece, which is all creation language, right? We are new creations individually. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of that. If anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. There, it's not just new people, yes, we are part of the new creation. We are his new people that he has created. But then he turns from the individual to, we could say, the corporate. And as he looks at the corporate, he speaks of Jew-Gentile relationships. This is sometimes strange to us, right? Because we don't think this way. We don't think in terms of Jew-Gentile. Uh, We think often in terms of other divisions, right? But the Bible, because it follows the covenants, has a very strong Jew-Gentile tied to God's choice of Abraham, 
that through Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people will be the means by which blessing comes to the world. And so when you have an old covenant that deliberately separated the Jewish people for a time from the Gentiles, right? How do you get these two together, right? And that's what the Apostle Paul is reflecting on. And primarily, he's addressing the Gentiles here. Verses 11 uh, and 12 is speaking of what the Gentiles once were outside of the nation of Israel and outside of the covenants of promise. He says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who are the circumcision, that done by hands, remember that. And now he goes on to speak of their terrible plight. This is parallel to what he says in verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3, it's individually. You're dead in sins and alienated from God and under God's wrath. Well, here's the, here's the corresponding feature in terms of the covenant relationship. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. Right? Now he says, when he, when he says here without God in the world, it's not as if they're all atheists. Uh, the Gentiles, you go through Old Testament times, the present times that Paul's writing, there's all kinds of beliefs in God and everything else. But from the biblical perspective, there's only one true and living God. And if you're not related to the creator of the universe who's revealed himself through, uh, in his revelation through the covenants, through Abraham and Israel and so on, you don't know God, right? You're without God, without hope. And he speaks of the plight of these Gentiles because they stand outside the promises, right? When they stand outside Israel and outside the promises to Abraham and to the nation of Israel, they do not have Messiah. And in Scripture, to have the promises of God is salvation and life. To believe the promises of God is how one is justified. Think of Abraham. He believes God's promises that are covenantally given and he is declared just before God. To not have those promises means that you are dead in your sins. You have no hope. You are not in relation to God. You are what was eventually first happened to Adam. You're cast out of God's presence. You're far off. And that is the plight of these Gentiles. But that's all changed, right? In history, that happened. And sometimes Gentiles did come into the covenants. Rahab and Ruth and so on. There was good news in anticipation. But now... In God's plan, all of that has changed. And indeed, this was the eternal plan of God from the very beginning. God's intention was always to have a people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. To Abraham, he promised that you will bring blessing to nations. All the way back to Adam. Adam is the head of creation. God's always has had universal purposes for tribes and nations and peoples and tongues. And all of this has now come in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, transitions, but now. You once were this, but now in Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus. And notice how he puts Christ before as a title, this Messiah Jesus. Now in Messiah Jesus, you who once were far off 
alienated, cast out, right? It's one of the ways the Bible describes our deadness of sins, right? God is, in Scripture, the all-present God. You can't escape him. Paul says in uh, Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being, right? Your very breath is given to you by God, right? Yet, this all-present God, if we are in our sin and not brought into saving relationship, we are far from him. We are alienated from him. We know nothing of his blessing. We know nothing of his presence. We are not in relationship with him. He is not our God and we are his people, right? And that's what he's saying here is you're far off. You're alienated. But what needs to happen is you need to be brought near. You need to be reconciled. And that's happened. You who are far off have been brought near through blood of Christ. Right? Here's all the work of the Redeemer, his life and death and cross and payment for our sins. But in his cross, how has he brought these Gentiles near? Well, he's brought a new covenant, right? That's what he's going to speak of in verses 14 through 18. How has this happened for the Gentile who is alienated far off outside of Israel? Well, verse 14, for he, Christ, is our peace who made the two, Jew, Gentile, who made them one, who destroyed, and this is how he did it through his cross, he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, he abolished in his very flesh, in his life, and ultimately his taking on our humanity, in his cross, his very flesh, the law and its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one new man, out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, this body that he's created, to reconcile both of them, Jew-Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He, Christ, came and preached Peace to you who are far away, that's the Gentile, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jew. For through Christ, through him, we both, Jew-Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit, right? Well, in some sense, in these just number of verses here, he summarized in some sense how the covenants work and how they've been brought to fulfillment in Christ, how in some sense Christ is from beginning to end because what he's saying here is how is it that God has now brought these two entities together in his eternal plan? That was always the intent, but how has he done that? Well, in his flesh, in his body, in his incarnation, in his very life, in his going to the cross, he brought the law and its regulations, this barrier, it's a reference, I think, to the law covenant. He's brought it to its God-intended end. And by bringing it to its God-intended end, he has now ushered in what the prophets look forward to, a new covenant. A new covenant where there is the complete payment for sin. A new covenant where now he has brought Jew and Gentile together in a new man, a new body, the church. He has created part of his new creation, a people, a people that comes from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. And he's reconciled. There's a horizontal reconciliation so that in this church, 
From every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, they are one in Christ Jesus. And he has brought both Jew and Gentile to God, vertical, right? And of course, he's picking up the fact that all people are fallen. All people, Jew and Gentile, need reconciliation first with God. And then they need, in God's purposes, to be brought together as one new humanity. And then he says here, which he will allude to and develop more, he gives us access. That's a beautiful truth. It's it's picked up later in terms of the temple imagery. In the Old Testament, even under the Old Covenant, the Jew only had access through the priest. But even only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, right? Only once a year, The access to God was very limited. Adam had access in the garden, but it was lost. As you worked through God's plan, the tabernacle temple gave you a little bit of access. But now in this new covenant, we now have full access. This is where in the gospel records, the temple veil gets rent down. That's signaling really what he's saying here. That whole law covenant's come to its end. Jesus already speaks of this in terms of himself as coming as the fulfillment of the temple. You remember in John 2 where he says, I'll destroy this temple in three days and rebuild it. And you think, at least the people around him were saying, what is he talking about here? Rebuild this thing in three days. It's taken 46 years under Herod to get this thing and we're still building it. Uh, What's he talking about? He spoke about his body. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the temple. He brings a new covenant and in him... He now creates a people that are rightly related to God, rightly related to one another, and we now have reconciliation with God and with one another. We have access to God. The God who's all present now is covenantally present with us, right? We now can know him and fellowship with him. And of course, that's why as he gives us the spirit, you can't be part of this church unless you are rightly related to God. You can't be part of this covenant unless you have new birth, that you have your sins forgiven. That's why the church cannot be viewed as a kind of Israel of old. This is a new humanity. And of course, of course, he emphasizes that. This isn't just the church, isn't just an extension of Israel or sort of a combination of things. It's a new people. Uh, the early church called the church a third race. <laughs> That's how they described it. It's not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's new, it's a new man. It's fitted for the new creation. Now, we know in our world that there's all kinds of alienations, and this is the way the Bible describes uniquely the covenantal alienation, but there is application to, to our world as people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, and background in a fallen world constantly are each other's throats, right? We know of the racial divisions in our country, and we know of gender divisions. We know all of that takes place. This is telling us here, and we could see this in other places, but this is telling us here that it's only in the church. It's only by the power of the gospel that you're going to have any of what's in our world's alienations put away. Right? You know, we live in a world where we depend upon government. That's a bad thing to do. My son lives in Washington, D.C., and I tell him, you're there to be salt and light, but if you ever think that by your actions in this government, you're going to bring change to people's hearts, you're going to bring healing racially, you're going to bring healing in any front, you're dreaming. Get out of Washington then. What you need is to be a Christian who does 
serve the state, this type of thing, but you need to see that it's only in the power of the gospel. It's only in the creation of this people. It's only in the church that people from all kinds of backgrounds, Jew, Gentile, and every other background, can ultimately be one in Christ Jesus because they have the same Savior, the same Lord, the same Spirit who's made them alive that gives them access to the same Father. And of course, in verses 19 through 22, he describes the church then as this new citizens, a new kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of God, and it's only that kingdom that lasts. The kingdoms of this world were taken out of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are just fading away. But the kingdom, the citizenship that we have in God's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, tied ultimately to the new Jerusalem, the city of God that will come in its fullness is that which lasts forever. We're part of the same family. He speaks of that in terms of verse 19, God's people, members of God's household, the temple imagery, which I've already been alluding to. We are being built as the temple of God. Nowhere in the Old Testament is Israel described as the temple. They have a temple. They have to go through the temple. But now in Christ Jesus, we are the dwelling of God. We are in covenant relationship. That's why in the book of Hebrews, after chapters and chapters and chapters that deal with Christ's great priestly work for us, how does he conclude? He concludes almost like we think anticlimactic, but it's not. He says, we have access, right? We can know God, we have access to God, so therefore enjoy the access that we have in prayer and relationship and fellowship as this new church is built and this new humanity is built which is the only hope of the world in the sense of the proclamation of the gospel. Well, what do you think of the church? Just in these few passages, as you work from old to new, to see it related to Christ, to see it part of the new temple and new humanity and new creation and uh, the new covenant community, in God's plan, the church is the apple of his eye. This is why Christ has come. This is, he's come to make us, right? He's called us to be not just individuals, but to be part of a family, a people that lasts forever. The world doesn't think much of us, right? And that's fine. If you want the pleasure and pleasing of the world, you're not really putting Christ first, right? You'll never get the accolades of the world. If you try, you're wasting your time, right? Instead, we want the pleasure of the Lord of the church. We want to be his people, knowing that we are called to be one with one another, reconciled in our own midst, and be a radiant testimony to the world. We need to commit ourselves not only first to Christ and the gospel, but also his people. We need to be church people. We need to be, because we're part of that family, see the church be pure and the church grow, and that involves ourselves. We need one another, and we together need to be those who are Christ's ambassadors in the world, proclaiming him as king and savior, anticipating his coming. The church sometimes can look in rough straits, but the Lord has promised to build his people. He's promised to build us. May we first right, realize, know that we are part of the church, that we are in living relationship with God. And may we then not have a cavalier attitude to the church. May we then say, that's my people, right? 
those are my family. In some sense, the church is more important than even your immediate nuclear biological family. It is the family of God that I now have a privilege of being part of. I know God and I know his people. And what a glorious truth that he's made us now in relation to Christ, the people of God. Well, I hope that encourages you this morning to see that the church is at the center of all of God's activity. You and I are. And as we live our week, our, our, uh, this week, our lives, we realize that whatever happens in our world around us, we are the people who are called to serve God, to serve this world, yes, by the proclamation of the gospel, the living it out, and seeing other men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Christ and become part of the family as we await the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the church, there's so much that can be said, the richness of how your word uh, anticipates the coming of Christ and what we will be and then how the New Testament expounds that. We confess that we often aren't what we are to be. We see that a lot in scripture, that we are this, but we constantly have to be vigilant. We constantly have to exercise faith and walk with you and we pray that even as we think of our individual lives, but more importantly, the corporate life of the church, that we will recommit ourselves to what is central to you, your people, what is central to our Lord Jesus, uh, his bride, that we will be concerned for one another, that we will see the church flourish in faith and repentance and service and growth, even as we experience suffering in this world, that we would bear witness faithfully to Christ and then see others who are without hope and without God in this world, come to hope, come to a living relationship with our glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.